The reading this morning is from Matthew 7, 1 to 6. It's about judging others. Judge not that you be not judged, for with judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You know, there's, um, there's reasons behind a lot of the songs that, that we sing on a Sunday. There's a, a thought behind it that often, you know, as a congregation, you may not be privy to and you may not realize. But this morning, you'll notice that we sang songs that were, were, were pointing our hearts to God, just saying, God, you are holy. God, this is all about you. Right? This is why we're here, because we're, we're looking to you, we're, we're praising you, and we're lifting our voices up to you. And, and that's what our focus was this morning in worship, was just turning our eyes to God and saying, you are holy. And, and the reason why we do that is when we recognize the God that we serve, it's then really hard to turn to our brother or sister, or turn to another and judge them. Right? When we sing with holy voices unto our Lord, and then turn to someone and judge their heart or judge their character or judge what's going on in their life, the two are not compatible. And so there's reasons why we sing what we sing this morning, and it's a reminder to us that these lips that praise God should not then go and condemn people. And so we've now come to the last section in the Sermon on the Mount. As we've moved from chapter 6 and we've moved into chapter 7, and, and once again, you're going to notice that with the change of chapters comes with a change in Jesus' focus. In chapter 6, we talked about the fact that Jesus' teaching was focused on how we are to live in light of God as our Father. As followers of Christ, how should we act? How should we live in light of knowing that God is Father of us? And in chapter 7, Jesus' attention shifts now to how Christians are to live in light of the fact that God is not just Father, but He is also Judge. Throughout this chapter, Jesus will remind us that we are not only children of God, but we are people who must live in light of the fact that we will come before God and we will be judged by Him, that we will give an account for our lives. And while this should not be a scary prospect, if you are a child of God, it is a reality that we have to live with. It is a reality that should govern our thoughts and our actions that we take throughout our lives. And so we're going to see this principle that people will be judged, taught by Jesus, all throughout Matthew chapter 7 as we complete the Sermon on the Mount in the next few weeks. And we're actually going to be postponing it and finishing it in the new year as we go into the Advent season. We're going to turn our attention to the Advent season that is before us, and we'll finish this up in January after today. 
But Jesus begins the theme in chapter 7 on the theme of judgment in verse 1 with a warning to, to men regarding one of the things that can happen when we forget our proper place in the order of things. Judge not that you be not judged. In, the, in his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, which was originally published way back in 1959, maybe not way back for some of you, sorry, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, right, he comments on the verses that we're looking at this morning. And his thoughts seem timeless when we look at the culture that we're living in right now and the tone that we're living in right now. His commentary could have easily been written in the last 10 years as opposed to the 60 plus years that it was actually written. And so in regards to Jesus' teaching in these verses, Jones shares the following thoughts. He says, never perhaps was a correct interpretation of this injunction more important than at this present time. Different periods in church history need different emphases. And if I were asked, what in particular is the need of today, I should say that it is a consideration of this particular statement, judge not that you be not judged. This is so because the whole atmosphere of life today, and especially in religious circles, is one that makes a correct interpretation of this statement quite vital. We are living in an era when definitions are at a discount, an age which dislikes thought and hates theology and doctrine and dogma, it is an age in which is characterized by a love of ease and compromise, anything to live a quiet life, as the expression goes. It is an age of appeasement. It is an age that dislikes strong men because it says they always cause disturbance. It dislikes a man who knows what he believes and really believes it. It dismisses him as a difficult person who is impossible to get on with. This is Jones's synopsis of the world that he was living in back in the 60s and the 50s and the 60s. And, and I think that this synopsis remains as relevant today as when he first wrote it, maybe even more relevant to the day that we live in. And I'm going to touch a little bit on our culture in relation to this idea of judgment, because if we take just verse 1 this morning, we live in a culture where whether you are Christian or non-Christian, this decree from Jesus is widely known. And people may not even know where it came from, but they know, judge not, or you will be judged. And they don't just know it, but they like to employ it, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. And the sad thing about it, though, is that it's often used completely incorrectly. And it's used as an argument for self-justification or the condemnation of another person, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching us not to do here. Matthew 7, 1, if we were to do a survey of the most misconstrued, misused, and abused verses in the Bible, it would be right up there alongside Jeremiah 29, 11. People love to misuse this verse. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to first tackle the misconceptions about this text and, and discuss what Jesus does not mean. We have to understand first what he does not mean before we can consider what he does mean. And then I want to end after doing that just briefly by looking at verse 6, which is this really odd saying that kind of feels like it's thrown in there by Matthew. It kind of comes out of nowhere. And it's like, how does this fit into what he's saying in verse 1 to 5? And so we're going to look at what Jesus means by this odd saying of dogs and pigs and pearls and how it fits into this idea of judgment. And so as he's done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins his teaching on judgment by giving us a principle, which is in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And then he gives us examples to emphasize that principle in verse 3 to 5. And in between verse 1 and 3, he also gives us a proverb. 
in verse 2. And so, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. You know, the word judge is often a judicial meaning connected to it. And so picture the process of a judge making an official ruling in a courtroom, and it is helpful, it's a helpful picture for us to understand what Jesus is commanding his people not to do here. But before we dive into that, as I said, let's consider what Jesus does not mean in these verses because it is so widely misused. You know, the idea of judgment in our culture often carries with it this connotation that the one being judged is hated by the one giving the judgment. And at times, this can certainly be true. But for the most part, our culture has, heavily, has been heavily influenced by this lie that to disagree with someone is to hate them. To not affirm someone's life choices is to revile that person. To not go along with the masses in supporting the popular beliefs and narratives of the day is bigotry. We have come to a place where to judge a person or a situation, to use any sort of discernment, to think critically through a situation or a circumstance and come to any conclusion other than affirming that individual or circumstance is evil. And in this kind of atmosphere, it makes it very easy to misquote and misrepresent the judgment that Jesus is condemning. Judge not that you be not judged has become this heart cry for those, whether they are non-Christian or Christian, to justify their lifestyle and try to prohibit anyone from doing anything less than embracing their choices. Right? If someone wants to get a divorce without proper reason, who are you to say otherwise? You can't judge. Right? If, if someone wants to identify however they want to identify, how dare you do anything other than applaud that person? This is so often the form in which this verse is thrown out there. It's a kind of trump card to guilt people into going along with whatever it is we need affirmation in. And in this, this is precisely the first way which it is being misused. Judge not that you be not judged does not forbid all judgment. In fact, it's actually quite nonsensical to think that this means that we can never judge. For example, we would have to ignore much of Jesus' teaching in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount if we were not allowed to judge in any way. Because to live out much of Jesus' injunctions in the Sermon on the Mount is us making a moral judgment or distinction about what is right and what is wrong. In addition to that, there's many other examples in Scripture where Jesus actually tells his people, you need to judge. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus institutes a process for a Christian brother to deal with another Christian brother who sins against him. It is a process which requires us to make judgments of another person. And so it does not mean that we are never to judge. Similarly, it also does not mean that we are never to express an opinion about another person or a situation. There's this idea that we are not to express opinions or be involved in another person's life. And it's false. And it grows out of this individualistic culture 
that functions largely on the mindset, you do you and I'll do me. Right? This is yours, that's mine. This is my bubble, your bubble. Whatever happens there is up to you. Whatever happens here is up to me. Don't worry about what's going on in each other's bubbles. The big problem with this idea, specifically amongst Christians, where this sort of thing starts to bleed into our lives, is that the Bible doesn't teach that view. The Bible teaches that while we have our own possessions and families and responsibilities, we are also a part of a bigger body of Christ and a bigger family of faith. It teaches that we are brothers and sisters and heirs with one another. And there is a very strong emphasis on togetherness in the body of Christ. Scripture goes so far as to say that we can't function properly without one another. We need one another. And with that comes accountability to one another, which again is a form of judgment. Unfortunately, within the church sometimes, we're so concerned with unity that we allow anything to pass in order to maintain that unity. But what we don't realize is the long-term effects of that approach will eventually lead to the destruction of unity that we're trying so hard to keep. And so it's better to confront better to deal with in the moment. And so I think that we all, whether we get kind of caught up in this view of I shouldn't judge, we all inherently understand that Jesus is not saying never judge. Nor is he saying never share an opinion or use discernment. D.A. Carson commenting on this, he puts it quite directly, he says to never judge means becoming undiscerning simpletons. That's one way of putting it. But people will try to use this verse to condemn your judgment and justify themselves. And we must not allow another to lay undue guilt upon us for being discerning and holding fast to what is right. All the while, on the other hand, we must be discerning of ourselves regarding the judgments that we make and the motivations behind those judgments. And that's really the heart of Jesus' message here. So let's, let's consider, what does Jesus actually mean by, judge not that you be not judged? Because he is warning against a type of judgment that is wrong and is sinful. So when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he is warning against the kind of judgment or determinations that essentially put us into the judgment seat of God by declaring a verdict over a person's life, which we have absolutely no right to decree. He's warning us about moving beyond discerning judgment, which is good and right, to a type of prideful criticism of another person's life, to a type of judgmentalism that condemns another person. An excellent example of this is we see in Romans 14 that Paul talks about. In chapter 14 of Romans, Paul's addressing some controversies that had arisen in the church in Rome. And it was a church that had a really good mix of Jew and Gentile believers. So that meant that in the church, those who had come to faith in Jesus had very different backgrounds, which meant they had very different rules for how they were to live. And so the Jews, they were not to eat food offered to idols, and they were to honor the Sabbath day as holy. And this caused some disputes in the church among those who continued to hold to those things as good and right, and those who did not continue to hold those things in Christian freedom. And so in response, Paul teaches the principle of Christian conscience. That, that something may be sin for one, but is not for another. 
And something may be good for one that is not for another. And one may emphasize something as more important than another. Now, all of this is within the confines of the fact that there are very real sinful actions and sinful things that are declared for all of God's people. But where there is space for conscience, what we are to do is we are to fill those gaps with charity for one another rather than judgment. Right? A discerning judgment we should use regarding what is right for us, not a condemning judgment as though another person should share our conscience. And so this is what Paul's warning against in Romans 14, verse 10 to 13. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so when we judge in this way where we condemn and we despise our brother or sister in Christ, what we are doing is we are usurping the place of God, and in usurping God's authority, we are making ourselves accountable and answerable to him. And Jesus warns us from verse 1 and 2, if we judge in this way, without charity, with a harsh measure, that is how God is going to judge us. Now I can anticipate that some may have an issue with the idea of God judging his people. Because that's what we're talking about here. We've said all along, the Sermon on the Mount is for believers. And so Jesus is warning that if we judge harshly, we will be judged harshly. So some may, may stumble over the idea of God judging his people because of a conclusion that isn't wrong, but it's just not the full picture of God's judgment. Right? So some may conclude that as a, as a child of God, he has removed condemnation, he has removed judgment from us so that we will not be judged by him. And that is not wrong, it's just an incomplete view of God's judgment. Right? We must remember the removal of condemnation, the removal of wrath, the removal of judgment refers to the final, eternal judgment where we come before God and we are in Christ and we are saved because of Christ. We are not condemned, we are not judged. But it doesn't include all judgments made by God because there's three different types of judgments that we see in Scripture. First, there's the eternal, final judgment which is decreed by God, based upon our individual status before Him, based on whether we are in Christ or not. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That reality, in Christ or not in Christ, settles our final judgment and our final destination. But there's also two other types of judgment beyond that that God's children face. There's a, a judgment while we live on earth, and there's another judgment when we die. There are several scriptures that teach of God's loving reproof of his children for our sins. He is much like a loving earthly father who confronts and gives consequences for the iniquities of his children. Micah right now, my son, is in the terrible twos. Ask my wife. He loves getting in trouble right now. What kind of 
loving father would I be if I just let him do his thing and he could just grow up thinking he could get away with whatever he wants? Right? God reflects earthly loving fathers. We reflect our father in heaven. Hebrews 12, 5 to 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So this tells us that while we're alive on earth, we will receive loving discipline from our Heavenly Father for our disobedience as he sees need for it in our lives. If you want a, a few more details of what this can look like, look at 1 Corinthians 11. I won't get into it now, but it's an interesting example of God's discipline that we should consider. So that's the second kind of judgment. And then lastly, there's a judgment that occurs after death for believers when we come before our Heavenly Father. Speak, Paul speaks very plainly of it in 1 and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done Sorry, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so these truths from God's word should be a reminder for us that our Heavenly Father is a loving Heavenly Father, but that means He reproves His children, and He cares deeply about our conduct in Christ, right? We are to be holy as He is holy. We are to keep our conduct honorable, and that includes our heart posture towards others and how we judge men and situations. And the purpose of the example Jesus gives in verse 3 to 5 is meant to illuminate this further for us. Jesus says in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I was thinking about this week, and this illustration that Jesus gives. And, and I, I have personally chopped down more trees in the past year than in all the rest of my life combined. That's just one of the realities, right, of being a city dweller for 30 plus years and then moving to the country and living in the country for the past two. There's a lot more trees, a lot more things to cut down than in the city. It's all cement where I was from. So this summer I had one particular incident where I was, I was chopping wood and, and I had sunglasses on, maybe not safety glasses, but I had sunglasses on. And I got a speck of wood in between my glasses, went right into my eye. And, and I've obviously had things in my eye before, but this was by far the worst. No matter what I tried to do, I couldn't get, get it out, I couldn't wash it out. It was in there for probably about 45 minutes or so, the whole time scratching up my eye and I'm trying to get it out there. It was a lot of fun. After about 45 minutes or so, I managed to get it out, but my eye was puffy, it was red, it was irritated, it was kind of blurry for the rest of the day leading into the next day. And so as I'm fighting to get this out, I can't imagine if someone came up to me and had a log in their eye and came up to me and said, hey, I can help you with that. And get that little, that little speck in your eye, I can get that out for you. I'd probably look at that person and be like, Really? Yeah, you think you can, maybe you should deal with that. 
That massive thing in your eye, I don't think you're going to be able to see my speck when that big log is in your eye, right? You got a little something. I don't want someone with a big log in their eye trying to help me get this little speck out of my eye. I'm going to lose my eye. Jesus' point in this example is not that we are not to help remove the speck from our brother's eye, but that we can only do so in the right spirit when we don't have a massive log in our own eye. The perfect example of this is found in 2 Samuel 12, King David's reaction to Nathan's story that he shares with him. We probably all know the story. David had an affair with Bathsheba. He got her pregnant, and to cover his tracks, he had her husband, Uriah, killed. And one day, God sends Nathan the prophet to David to tell him a story about a rich man and a poor man. So the rich man had many flocks and possessions, while the poor man had one little lamb that was precious to him. And when a traveler came to the rich man's house, he refused to prepare one of the many sheep from his flock in order to feed the guest. And instead, what did he do? He took the poor man's one lamb and prepared that for his guest. When David heard this story from Nathan, he was greatly angered. He said of this man, he deserves to die. And he will restore fourfold of what he took from this poor man. David was so incensed about it. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. And Nathan proceeds to recount all the Lord had done for David and what David had done to poor Uriah. David had a massive log in his eye. He was in no place to judge this man who had a speck in his eye. The man in the story had merely stolen another man's lamb while David had an affair, killed another man. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye. And David's story highlights one of two errors that I think we can judge people wrongly out of. First is a lack of self-awareness. David failed to see the brevity of his sin, yet he judged the man for a much lesser evil. And the second is that we can judge from a hypocritical or a hypercritical spirit. We can be so much like the Pharisees, right? Where, where our aim is not really to help another person, but we get this sort of malicious pleasure in judging them. We just want to point out their flaws. And it's rooted in a prideful arrogance of our own position before God. I want to tease this out a little bit because I, I think it's important to try to, to give us some examples that may help us identify this in our own lives, this kind of evil judgment that we can sometimes fall into. And there's so many different examples you can give. I'll, I'll give you just four things that we should consider when judging another person. First is, if we find ourselves readily making judgments in situations that are of no concern to us, we may want to check our motivation for doing so. One example that I find seems to be so prominent as an adult is the amount of opinions parents have about how other parents raise their kids. Everybody relate to this? There's so many different opinions. And they tend to be quite critical. 
And they're often given in a spirit of, it's not really a spirit of, I want to help them. I want to point out what you're doing wrong. And ultimately, it's not a matter that concerns us. And so whenever we step into a sphere of judgment that doesn't readily involve us, we should be very careful. Second, we need to be careful that what we judge as right or wrong is based on biblical principles, not our own prejudices. Kind of like what we see in Romans 14. We will all have some long-held beliefs that have not yet come under the Lord's authority. And we need to be aware of that and make sure that the judgment that we judge is not based on man's opinion, but God's decrees. Third, we need to be careful of how easily we can judge an individual's personality rather than principles. Right? How easy is it for our conversations to turn to an individual, especially one who maybe holds a different view than us, and suddenly our language becomes, well, they are this. Well, they are that. And it's no longer about principle but it's become judgment of a different person or a different personality. Fourth, we need to be careful of disregarding circumstance and the work of God in another person's life. This is one of the hardest ones, and this is why we have to be so careful when we don't know other people's story. Right? Because the Lord works miraculously. I've seen him do incredible things in moments. He's done incredible things in moments in my life. But the reality is that sanctification is also a lifelong process. And when we make judgments, we must consider life experiences. I've seen this principle play out over and over, where an individual from a stable family with good discipline and moral teaching comes to faith and seems to progress quicker in sanctification than an individual who comes from a broken home, had no stability, no one teaching them right or wrong, and maybe have had some hang-ups that they're clinging closer to because of the life that they have lived. That's not always the case. It's a generalization, of course. But I'm only saying that because we must consider circumstances in our judgments. We must consider that some have been through much more. Have seen darkness to a degree that we have not seen. Have experienced things that we have not experienced. And maybe the Lord is taking a little bit longer to sanctify some things in their life because of what they've been through. Your ability to control your tongue may be an easy win for some of you. Whereas for another brother or sister, that may be a hard-fought victory. I'll sum it up like this. In order for us to judge someone else correctly, we must first see ourselves. This is what Jesus is saying. You have to see yourself clearly. We have to remove the log from our eye. We must be willing to humbly stare into the sinfulness of our hearts. We have to recognize and grasp just how wicked we are, how fallen we are, how every single day 
we would easily be tempted and fall into sin would it not be for God's grace upon our lives. And I'm not talking about a self-deprecation here. I'm not talking about a worldly, oh, woe is me, I'm such a sinner. I'm talking about the right acknowledgement of how the Bible describes every one of us. That we are more sinful than we like to imagine. But we have also received way more grace than we could ever imagine. Only when we see ourselves correctly are we then in a position to meekly and rightly judge another. Because then that judgment will be given in the proper spirit of charity, in the proper spirit of generosity. Because that's what we've received from our Heavenly Father. I want to end just very briefly by looking at Matthew 7, 6. This very unusual saying that concludes this teaching on judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. As I've already said, this is a, this is a weird verse. It kind of throws us off. It feels like it doesn't fit there. But as with everything that Jesus does, it is a fitting conclusion to his teaching on judgment. And what it is, first and foremost, is it is a warning to those who would say, never judge. To those who would try to use this, judge not that you be not judged, incorrectly. Jesus is warning here against a lack of discernment amongst his people. It reminds me of what he said to his disciples when he sent them out to preach the gospel. He told them, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Jesus uses the illusion of dogs and pigs. And it seems harsh, but he's referring to certain people. And when we understand that in Jewish culture, pigs were unclean animals. And dogs were not, you know, the cute domestic best friend. I don't think they're cute, but the cute domestic best friends that we think of in our culture. I used to think they're cute. There's a story behind that. But, <laughs> but rather, you know, they were, they were wild, right? They were despised. Dogs were scavengers in Palestine. And so when we know the biblical picture of pig and dog, we recognize very quickly these are harsh terms of disgrace that Jesus is using here. A dog was often an insult used of another. You know, in the story of, of David and Goliath, right? David goes out to fight Goliath. What's Goliath's response to David? Am I a dog that you would come out with your sticks to fight me? So what Jesus is saying here in these verses, he's saying, we are to be discerning of others. And He's talking about the most important situation that we should be discerning about. When it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the good news. Saying we are to make a judgment whether we continue our efforts with an individual or a group of people in the proclamation of the gospel based on that person's response to God's truth. Dogs and pigs 
refer to non-Christians who persistently respond to the gospel in a vicious way. The picture of a wild dog is this picture that the wild dog would tear up anything that is holy. A pig would, would trample on something of value like pearls under its feet out of ignorance. So Jesus is saying we must be discerning of those who have shown clear and persistent evidence of rejecting the gospel with vileness and contempt and judge whether we are to continue our efforts or leave them in their sin, maybe for a time. It's a somber wisdom that the Lord is calling his people to have, and we see Jesus do this, and we see the apostles do this. Paul in Acts 13, 46, him and Barnabas, they, they talk to the Jews, and he basically say, it, it, it's necessary for us that we spoke to you first, but you've thrust this aside. You've judged yourselves unworthy of it, and so now we're taking it to the Gentiles. There's so many examples where we see the apostles using this kind of discerning judgment, deciding to leave areas because of hostility to the gospel. Judge not that you be not judged is another example of a tightrope that we walk as followers of Christ. This narrow road that we have to travel on. To the far right and to the far left, we either become judgmental or we become undiscerning simpletons. We must be constrained by the Spirit of God within us in order to walk rightly in judgment. And to do this requires a close relationship with our Heavenly Father, especially with what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, 6, with the gospel itself. We don't take that lightly. We must be constrained by the Spirit. We must understand God we must understand his heart in those moments. We must seek wisdom from him. It's more than just having a knowledge of his word. You cannot make these kind of judgments just because you know the word of God well. It has to be out of a love for God. It has to be out of a love for people. Be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves as Jesus has charged us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ in our lives. Father, we know that we must first and rightly see ourselves as your sons and daughters. That we are people who have been ransomed by you through Jesus Christ when we place our faith in him. And we get to call you Father. Lord, let us also recognize that we are people who will be judged. That we will come before you and give an account that as a loving Father, you will reprove us. So Lord, 
Let us be a people that walk in the proper fear of the Lord, that we have an awe of you, that we have an understanding of your greatness and your love. Father, help us walk the narrow path. Lord, I I truly believe that if your people could get this right, judge not that we be not judged, if we could understand when to judge rightly and when to hold our tongues, we would look so different than the world. Father, constrain us by the power of your Spirit. Keep us from temptation and sin. Lord, help us to judge rightly. Father, we thank you for your grace when we get it wrong. Lord, encourage us through the power of your Spirit to strive and and get this right. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.